Prestige heads, and welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, and I'm here with my buddy uh, Derek Davison. Derek, how's your week been? Hello. Have you have you have you suffered any of the hurricane where you are? Uh, we did suffer some, not nearly as much as from what I've seen in uh, like Philadelphia, New York, and that area. But we did have um, not last night, but two nights ago. Um, about three o'clock in the morning, there was one of the most violent thunderstorms I've ever experienced. Uh, it was it was wild. It woke everybody in the house up. Uh, it was so that was that was fun. Uh, the next day was a lot of fun, having woken up in a start at three o'clock in the morning, wondering if a tree was going to fall on my house or if we were going to get a tornado, all those nice things. But, that actually yeah, happened so. to someone I know. A tree fell through their bedroom. Oh, there's been, and they I just mean, happened. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it happened with Ida, but where we live kind of in this D.C. suburbs, there's, you know, big trees all over the place. And, and the more than one house kind of in our near vicinity here has has had that happen to it uh you know over the years we've been living here that's really incredible and it's just no, it's terrifying to think about i mean to just be sitting there and like a big tree limb falls in your house i mean can, can you even imagine it's just uh one of those things no, it's extremely terrifying. I mean, I'm in sunny Los Angeles, and we don't have to worry about that. But it just highlights the, um, you know, the rapid effects of climate change that we're going to be experiencing in the next few years, and serves as a good uh, indicator of what we're likely to see. Uh, and especially also, uh, <laughs> and of course, most important, let's bring it back to us uh, in terms of our interview uh, later in this episode uh, with Keith Plymers over uh, climate change, which you know, this is an issue that we're going to be discussing um unfortunately yeah, for many years deforestation on some level yeah uh, trees exactly um exactly but you know we'll we'll talk about climate change more in that interview but what's been going on uh in afghanistan uh it seems like you know u.s troops have left uh, uh there's a couple of hundred of, of americans that still remain mostly seem to be of uh, afghan uh, descent at least uh, partially um but what's what's going on there um, well, the, the evacuation, the airlift, whatever you want to call it, um, ended at midnight on August 31st, as was the deadline. Uh, so m Monday basically was the last day. Um, I, I, people have probably seen that like stock defense department propaganda photo of, you know, the, the guy who was commanding the evacuation, uh, being the last man on the plane and night vision, that very dramatic photo, uh, which drives me nuts. Four seen it so many times now. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was it. That was the end. The Taliban, uh, conducted, uh, well, they, they held a victory party basically on Tuesday, uh, in several places. There was in at least one instance, uh, in the city of Host, uh, they held a mock funeral for the United States and NATO, complete with flag-draped coffins. So that that must have been fun. Were there anything in the coffins? Was it like an effigy of Uncle Sam or, uh, I don't or know. Biden? I, all, or... I, all I know is they draped the U.S. and NATO flags over them. I don't I don't know if they put anything inside. But I, I would hope not, because why would you make somebody carry a, 
a full coffin for a mock <laughs> funeral. That seems cruel. Yeah, no, that's uh, that is cruel. Um, th- I mean, there are a couple of things to to talk about. The most immediate thing, and by the time people hear this, uh, the Taliban will probably have named uh, its government or at least outlined whatever government it plans to form. Um, that's supposed to happen. It seems like, uh, supposed to happen sometime today, uh, Thursday. Um, it's unclear exactly, you know, what the details will be. It looks like they're going to, uh, put together something that's similar to the last Taliban government in the nineties, similar to, um, the government of Iran and in structure, there will be a Supreme leader or Emir, uh, who functions as as the head of state uh, that will be the Taliban's leader, uh, Haibatullah Akhunzade. Uh, and, uh, you know, underneath him, then he'll be sort of the removed kind of super political, uh, I, I shouldn't say super political, kind of beyond politics. I don't know what the, the prefix would be. but I think it would be supra. Supra, yeah, maybe supra yeah, political. Supra political. Out, outside the system. It's been a long system. time since I studied any Latin. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, he'll be sort of the guy who exists outside the system. And then you'll have, you know, um, a variety of people underneath him. Um, the, the, the key figure will probably be Abdul Ghani Baradar, who was the chief Taliban negotiator. Uh, he'll probably serve in something akin to a prime minister's ship head of government uh, role. There will be high level positions for. Sirajuddin Haqqani, the head of the Haqqani network, uh, for Mohammed Yaqub, who's the son of the former supreme leader or, or emir of the Taliban, uh, Mohammed Omar. Um, what I think it will be interesting to see is whether or not there are positions and how important those positions are for people who are remnants of the, the previous Afghan government. Right. So Hamid Karzai, uh, Abdullah Abdullah Karzai being, you know, a former president once removed, I guess. Uh, Abdullah Airport the, named after him. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, not for very much longer. They'll probably rename uh, that one. Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably already has been renamed. Uh, Abdullah Abdullah, who was the chief government negotiator uh, in the in the peace process. Both of them have stayed in the country and have been engaged with Taliban leaders. So they may get something. It, it's unclear. I mean, it, it, it's going to depend on how much the Taliban want to sort of impress the rest of the world with their moderation right. and their willingness to work work across the aisle in a bipartisan fashion uh, right. to reach exactly. solutions for the Afghan people, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's uh, a solutions-based government. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that'll be um, what the thing to watch, I think, is the, the government is rolled out. Um, the other issues have to do with the messy U.S. departure, uh, the drone strike on Sunday. The U.S. carried out a drone strike in Kabul. Wait, but Derek, supposedly. before we get to that, before oh, sure. we get to that, yeah. I just want to make, uh, I just want to highlight one thing. Or actually, it seems like the U.S. is not going to have a diplomatic presence in Afghanistan itself. That seems to be the plan, at least in the short term. Yes, the the diplomat. I mean, it will have an Afghan like embassy. It will have an Afghan diplomatic. Uh, office, but it will be based for the time being in Qatar, which is served right. as sort of the Taliban's diplomatic outpost to the world during the civil war, um, or during the war, I guess. Uh, the the I mean, I think the intent would be to well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, there may be at some point it may make sense to move back to Kabul, but but it's gonna a lot of it will depend on 
what right. the Taliban does and how the U.S. and the Taliban sort of relate in the months to come. Right. That 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 was my understanding. Um, so sorry, please. So back to the no, no. to the so, various yeah. attacks. <laughs> right. So the the our our last, uh, you know. Uh, oopsie on the way out the door uh, was this drone strike that the U.S. carried out in Kabul on yeah, Sunday, terrible. supposedly terrible. targeting a minivan or some kind of vehicle carrying suicide bombers. Again, Islamic State Khorasan province suicide bombers who were definitely going to destroy the, the or attack the Kabul airport again. Uh, it turns out that these this was a family. Basically, we decimated a family, killed 10 people, six or seven of them children. Um, it's, it's unclear whether there was any ISIS bomber or ISIS intention of, of an attack that uh, this drone strike had anything to do with, or if we just completely uh, misidentified the target, I guess, you know, uh, to the extent that you, you want to say it was an oopsie. Um, and, and so it seems, it seems like just to give some context that this was uh, in response to the uh, suicide attack at the airport that killed 13 uh, members of the American Armed Services. And, and this was kind of a lashing out, it seems to be based on faulty intelligence. <sighs> Yes, I would say. I mean, there was a retaliatory drone strike on Friday against somebody who supposedly was involved in planning the airport attack. Uh, this one was couched as like an act of self-defense, basically, like there was an imminent threat that these people were driving to the airport <laughs> to carry out an attack and we had to to bomb them. Um you know, so, yeah, I mean, some of it is lashing out. Some of it's probably bad intelligence. Some of it is we don't care. I mean, this is what the United States does. We right? don't care. We, we, yeah, we don't care, basically, about civilian casualties in these sorts of instances. Um, and and it, I do think that's connected to the racialized politics that we've been talking about periodically on the podcast about we, we just value non-white lives differently than we value uh, white lives in general, particularly in the global south. And this is, you know, uh, uh, one case of a much larger uh, issue that's been affecting American foreign policy since the very beginning of the republic. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think you can see it also uh, in in another aspect of the evacuation, which was the preference that was placed on Amer getting Americans out and not the Afghans who, uh, you know, had worked for the U.S. military and other outlets and uh, NGOs, contractors, yeah. right, and are now probably in hiding uh, in fear of retaliation from the Taliban. Uh, I think just today, maybe uh, the, or I guess it was yesterday, uh, the State Department acknowledged that the majority of those people who were probably eligible for special immigrant visas or were had been determined to be eligible uh, were left behind in, in the evacuation, which I think, you know, speaks to something that I, I, I feel like we should be very delicate about because there have been a lot of bad faith criticisms of the evacuation effort that are being launched by people who really didn't want to evacuate at all, wanted to be in Afghanistan in perpetuity. Um, right. and, and we'll so talk about that in the, when we go over the Biden speech in a, in a couple of yeah, minutes. Yeah, I think, but I, I, I think it's been, it's been difficult therefore to criticize 
the way the, the, the evacuation was conducted. But I think, um, and it's not just to lay this at Joe Biden's feet, the Trump administration refused to bring any Afghans out pretty much. Uh, the Obama administration didn't really do enough to bring uh, special immigrant visa eligible Afghans out of the country. Uh, this is a problem that goes well, well beyond Biden. Um, but it, it is, a, I think, a fair criticism that, that not enough was done for these people in particular who are, um, you know, should have been brought out of the country. And then I think there are going to be questions that will remain open for now, but was that an instance of deliberate cruelty or callousness, or was it just bureaucratic inefficiency? Was it difficulties on the ground? And I think that remains open, but I think, like you said, it's pretty clear that this wasn't made a priority, um, which again reflects the type of racialization of U.S. foreign policy that we've uh, talked about. Uh, no, and it's yeah, it's exact. I mean, I think it's very much based in in a racial view there there you know for the last 10 years the you know the i think the attitude has been uh why would we want to bring afghans to the united states if we don't have to basically and right. the optimism has been you know we're rebuilding the country we're we're creating a modern state and let's just keep them let's just you know have, they should stay there and and live there why you know why bring them to the us and and that's that's fundamentally rooted in a in a racialized mindset that you don't want to bring refugees or even you know uh, people who have actually worked for you and helped you in in this capacity and are at some risk you don't want to bring them to the united states and like you know uh, uh get into a debate about immigration and and uh, all the things that are involved in that unless you unless you know it's really absolutely necessary which yeah i i think race has a lot to do with that and which, as we talked about with Aziz Rana on our third episode, is endemic to settler colonialism. One of the ideas, of course, of settler colonialism is that you settle the land with a particular type of person. And the xenophobia and anti-refugee politics that we have in this country is intimately connected to something that is foundational uh, to this country, uh, that is to the United States. Uh, and speaking of Af Afghanistan, I want to go over a little bit this Biden speech, because I think it's really interesting. So Biden gave a speech a few days days ago on uh, you know the the exit of Afghanistan because he was receiving such pushback from the legacy media uh, in particular I think the corporate media more than any other constituency in American society really united uh, against uh, against Biden in in this effort from Afghanistan and I think Biden felt the need uh, to address it so it was about a 26 minute speech and I want to read some excerpts because I think it's interesting and it reveals a lot about what the future of the American Empire is going going uh, to be. So I'm going to divide it into two sections, a, a good section, a based Biden section, and a bad section, a bad Biden section. And so I'll start with, with the good. So these are direct quotes from the speech. Quote, we were left with a simple decision, either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration uh, Side note, it's interesting that Trump is kind of like Voldemort. He doesn't mention Trump, which is kind of weird. Presidents oftentimes refer to their predecessors by name, but let's just leave it by that. So, quote, either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration and leave Afghanistan or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands of troops, uh, tens of thousands more troops going back to war. That was the choice, the real choice between leaving or escalating. I was not going to extend this forever war. 
and I was not extending a forever exit, um, unquote. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that a lot of the criticisms are really made in bad faith and kind of just want um, the U.S. troops to remain forever, like Max Boot said at one time, you know, to be at, at sort of Indian War, a frontier war. And I use the term Indian War uh, because that's the one he he used, but that's essentially what he wants. And Biden's right to criticize that, and people didn't really want, uh, you know, uh, people to leave, and so they were arguing that the exit was bad. I, I agree with all of that. I, I think um, th- there's something about this that that hits me the wrong way. I, I feel like he's trying to have it both ways. It's, uh, you know, I, I made the principal decision not to extend the forever war and to put a deadline on the exit, but also like Donald Trump made me do it. Right. Don't it's blame weird. me, blame Trump. It's, it's a yeah. weird, like, the buck stops here, but also not here. Like, it's it's just a strange kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I think that's just related to sort of like making Trump into the uh, the devil, and, and this is to say Trump was obviously very bad, of course, but the way he was treated in in the liberal uh, media is that you can't even mention him by name, which is kind of a strange and immature thing to do. So here's the next uh, quote. Quote, the bottom line is there is no evacuation from the end of a war that you can run without the kinds of complexities, challenges, threats we face, unquote. And I think that's right. And and like you said, there could have been more done and there is deserved criticism of Biden, but I think a lot of it was bad faith and it's good to see him call that out. Here's the next one, quote. To those asking for a third decade of war in Afghanistan, I ask, what is the vital national interest? In my view, we only have one, to make sure Afghanistan can never be used again to launch an attack on our homeland, unquote. And I, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's something that's not the greatest thing, but I think it's important that at least he, he's talking in terms of vital interests, because so much of American foreign policy is, I think, views the entire world as an American vital interest and has since 1945 for peculiar historical reasons. And it's a, a good development for Biden to at least begin to make, you know, strategic uh, choices here. You know, maybe as, as we'll see, it's not necessarily choices that you or I would want or an anti-imperialist would want, but it's good that he's making that distinction between vital and non-vital national interest. Um, and that's a positive development, even though the term national interest is, I think, extremely problematic because the real question is who's national interest. And oftentimes it's the national interest of America's elites. Um, so I think we'll probably do an episode at one point on the idea of the national interest, but I just want to underline that. So uh, here's an interesting one, Derek, quote, as we turn the page on the foreign policy that's guided our nation the last two decades, we've got to learn from our mistakes. To me, there are two that are paramount. First, we must set missions with clear achievable goals, not ones we'll never reach. And second, we must stay clearly focused on the fundamental national security interests of the United States of America, unquote. So again, we have this reference to the fundamental security interests, which between fundamental and non-fundamental, which is good. But it's interesting because what you have Biden here essentially doing is referring to the the Powell and Weinberger doctrine. Um, Derek, do you want to explain what that is or should I? You go ahead and and do that, but I I do have something to say about this. All right, so just briefly, after Vietnam, uh, Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger and Colin Powell, who of course was Secretary of State under Bush during the invasion of Iraq, um, basically articulated a doctrine variously referred to as the Weinberger doctrine or the Powell doctrine or the Weinberger-Powell doctrine. That essentially said that you know you should U.S. forces should only be committed uh, when there was a clearly achievable mission with public support and things along those lines. Uh, and this was basically the post-Vietnam 
uh, the post-Vietnam consensus determined by America's elites. And it's just, you know, interesting that, you know, first time as tragedy, second time as tragedy, at least in this case, is that Biden is essentially just referencing it again. So, quote, this decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. We saw a mission of counterterrorism in Afghanistan getting the terrorists to stop the attacks, morph into a counterinsurgency, nation-building, trying to create a democratic, cohesive, and united Afghanistan, unquote. And I think that is an important part because I do think, at least for the moment, it could always return in the future, but that the idea of nation-building really is a dead letter at this point among both political parties. I think that we really did live in a roughly 30-year, let's say 1991 to 2016 era where the United States really did believe it could remake the world um, in, in its image. And I do think that the, the various and myriad failures of the past you know, 20 years have really ended that dream, that nation building, at least for the moment, is not going to be something that the United States is going to uh, pursue in any real way. So that's the good. Derek, do you have uh, anything to say before we go to the bad? I do have something to say about this particular part of, of the speech, um, which is that if if Biden were serious about making sure that nation building is no longer no longer comes or doesn't come back, let's say, as a driving interest in U.S., foreign policy, uh, he wouldn't be proposing $715 billion military budgets. Um, he would be pushing back against the, I, the House Armed Services Committee added then another like $25 billion, I think, or something, $35 billion, uh, over what the administration wanted. He would be pushing back against that. What, what he's doing here is sort of rhetorically saying, this is, we're not going to do this anymore. It's a bad idea, which, you know, is a, is a sentiment that's, uh, I agree. It's, it's predominant in both parties at the moment for this, this one moment in time. Uh, but he's leaving the keys in the car for the, for some you know, whether it's the next guy or the, or I shouldn't say guy, the next president or the president after that, uh, as the, the memory of this debacle fades uh, to say, hey, you know, we still have this, uh, you know, trillion dollar security state that we get when you factor in intelligence services and everything else uh, that we can do something cool with. Let's take it out and, you know, give it a shot. And I, I feel like if you were serious about um, making a shift here that that there would be some structural there are a lot of structural things that you could do that that we're not going to do. Oh, Derek, I agree. And then now let's get to the the bad Biden part <laughs> of the speech. Quote: The terror threat has metastasized across the world, well beyond Afghanistan. We face threats from Al Shabaab in Somalia, Al Qaeda affiliates in Syria and the Arabian Peninsula, and ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and establishing affiliates across Africa and Asia. So I think this is a pretty strong indicator that Biden is going to continue to define the entire world as a vital U.S. security interest, or at least most of the global South. It's not to say that these groups don't exist. Um, and I, I mean, in some abstract sense, I think they pose a very, very minor security threat to the United States. But what this does suggest is that the structure of the American empire, the structure of the entire counterterrorism effort is going to remain relatively unchanged. And I think that's demonstrated again by this next part of the, of the speech. Quote, I also know that the threat from terrorism continues in its pernicious and evil nature, but it's changed, expanded to other countries. Our strategy has to change too. 
We will maintain the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan and other countries. We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. We have what's called over-the-horizon capabilities, which means we can strike terrorists and targets without American boots on the ground, very few if needed. So this is, again, just a full-throated endorsement of essentially forever war, forever policing of the global south through drones and occasional special forces. So what do you, what do you think about those two quotes? Um, I, I, yeah, I think you're correct. There's, there's a sense, I mean, he does get into sort of, uh, peer competition later on with China and Russia, but, um, there's, this isn't going away. Like even if, as the, the attention shifts somewhat to the new cold war or whatever you want to call it, the, the architecture of the war on terror is going to remain in place and it, it's easy, relatively easy to keep it in place because, uh, you know, we've, we've managed to make so much of it sort of automated and, and low footprint and, uh, very easy to, to keep going. Uh, the only effects are felt by the people who are on the other end of the drone strikes. Uh, and that's of course not a relevant factor in decision-making in Washington. Uh, you know, the notion that, we we face an actual threat from al-shabaab or from uh you know the islamic state's affiliate in west africa or any of these things is is absurd i mean yeah in some infinitesimal way i guess uh, right. or some you know extremely abstract unlikely yeah. abstract way you know possibility uh, that could be true but it's it's absurd in any realistic sense uh and the notion that that we have to maintain, I mean, over the horizon, if I were living in Somalia or Afghanistan or, you know, in West Africa somewhere or in Yemen, and I heard a U.S. president talk about our over the horizon capabilities, I would be terrified because that's that means drone strikes. That means we're, we're going to continue to, uh, you know, reserve the right to blow up parts of your country at will uh, just because, you know, we're the we're the hegemon and we'll refer to whatever legal justification, whether we keep the 2001, uh, you know, post 9-11 authorization for military force or we uh, find some other justification, self-defense. Well, you know, we've abused that concept so much. It's ridiculous. Uh, but we're going to maintain the right basically to to wage periodic warfare against your country as we deem it necessary. And that's that's not going away. I mean, it's clearly not going away. And that's what Biden is, is acknowledging here. And in fact, he actually says it directly, quote, as commander in chief, I firmly believe the best path to guard our safety and our security lies in a tough, unforgiving, targeted, precise strategy that goes after terror where it is today, unquote. So he's exactly saying, uh, Derek, what, what, you just, what you just articulated, that the counterterrorism is here to stay. The United States is going to remain sort of this, quote unquote, precision global police uh, policeman going to dominate the world through, quote unquote, precise warfare. But at, literally, as was just demonstrated in Afghanistan, is that precision warfare is really a misnomer. There's no such thing as precision warfare. Warfare. There's no such thing as humane warfare, faulty intelligence, mistakes, um, you know, just general callousness lead to innocents dying all the time. And so it's just a fantasy. But Biden is going to remain committed again to the structure of the empire. So we, we can't take based Biden too far. It's an unalloyed good that he removes uh, U.S. troops from Afghanistan. But again, the structure is here to stay. And on the anti-imperialist left, we need to really... Um, 
appreciate that. Uh, and I'm going to just end with this final quote, which does talk about peer competition, um, which I think is really important. So, quote, And here is the critical thing to understand. The world is changing. We're engaged in a serious competition with China. We're dealing with the challenges on multiple fronts with Russia. We're confronted with cyber attacks and nuclear proliferation. We have to shore up American competitiveness to meet these new challenges in the competition for the 21st century. And we can do both. Fight terrorism and take on new threats that are here now and will continue to be here in the future. And so, unquote. And so what you have here, again, is the classic America. We're going to fight wars all the time and everywhere and every for, uh, sort, uh, sort of enemy, which means continued enormous defense budgets, which means the continued structure of the American empire, both at home and abroad, remains, and which means that endless war and forever war are going to remain in practice despite what Biden says. Yeah, I mean, you'll notice, like, I mean, not that this was, I guess, an appropriate speech for it, but I mean, at least as appropriate as mentioning China and Russia in a speech about leaving Afghanistan, uh, we could have talked about pivoting our resources to deal with climate change. We could have talked about pivoting our resources to deal with pandemics, actual threats. Um, but, but instead it was just sort of this muscular, like, don't, don't worry. The military state isn't going anywhere. It's, uh, we're, we're going to, uh, be still be outspending everybody and, and sort of, uh, you know, diverting our resources to that. Don't worry. Exactly. So again, the structure of empire remains, even if it's particular tactical choice, um, is changed with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So speaking of the structure of empire, what's going on, uh, in Iran? Uh, well, uh, yeah, we can, I mean, we can run through very quickly just, uh, the Iran nuclear deal and the talks on reviving it, or, you know, that's a theme we've, we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, the, the chances of that happening are looking dimmer and dimmer by the day, basically. Um, Iran, of course, has a new president, uh, Ebrahim Raisi. They have a new foreign minister now, uh, Hossein Amir Abdullahian. Uh, who said earlier this week that um, Raisi's government does want to resume negotiations, which they, they put on hold, they put on ice sort of uh, uh, around the time of the election and the transition. Uh, they do want to resume negotiations to revive the nuclear deal, but it's going to take them two or three months to kind of get themselves uh, in order before they can come back to the table. And I think this is partly kind of tweaking the Biden administration, which took two to three months after it took office uh, to really get its act together and figure out what it wanted to do on Iran. So I think there's a little bit of a, uh, a sort of thumbing of the nose here. But um, it is it is worrisome from the perspective of like there, there was some progress that was going on uh, that was being made at the talks before Raisi's election kind of put everything on hold. And you don't really know what approach his government, which is considerably less interested in kind of a long-term diplomatic relationship with the U.S., uh, you don't really know what what kind of tactic they're going to take. And so there, it injects a, a considerably more uncertainty into the possibility of getting a deal done. I think both sides are still interested in a deal. Certainly, Iran would like relief from U.S. sanctions. Um, there's uh, Laura Rosen, who has a substack called Diplomatic, who's a very good foreign policy reporter, uh, reported uh, yesterday that that the Biden administration is, uh, you know, sort of 
um, getting anxious to get this done and and move on. Um, so I think on both sides, there's an interest in getting it done. It's just a question of uh, who's going to blink, who's going to sort of take the first step to uh, to concede to the other side. And and uh, this delay is not uh, making things any easier, basically. And I think it's just a general truism, particularly when you're talking about re-entering negotiations, that the longer it takes, the more unlikely it is to re-enter. Uh, well, thank you, everyone. Uh, and please enjoy our interview with Keith Plymers on climate change, everything you wanted to know about climate change, but we're afraid to ask. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, Derek. Bye-bye. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your weekly interview um, on American Prestige. I'm very happy to have my friend and colleague, Keith Plymers, an assistant professor at Illinois State University, uh, with Derek and myself this week. And Keith is an expert on climate, and we're going to be going into the deep history of climate change. If last week was more about living on the edge of disaster, this week is on uh, how we how we got to the wonderful condition that we're in today. So, Keith, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Awesome, man. So why don't we just start at the beginning? Um, you know, human beings, and correct me if I'm wrong, my, you know, my oral, my comps, are, my orals are a bit behind me now, but, you know, human beings have been settled in, in, in small towns or small villages, whatever, for about somewhere between ten and 13,000 years. Is that right? Am I right on that, bad boy? Uh, yeah, yeah. Usually the point for urbanization and the state is pegged around 12,000 years uh, before present. Oh, nice. That was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I hope everyone's <laughs> impressed. I remember that. That's like 14 <laughs> years ago. Jeez. Um, so, so I was just wondering, like, is there any research exploring like that sort of initial settlement and its effects on climate change? Because it seems like if we're talking about human imposed climate change, then we should really start at the beginning, which apparently is 12,000 years ago. Yeah, so I, I always think that it's good to think about this in terms of both what humans have done to the other-than-human world and then what the other-than-human world does to humans and to see those as complementary processes in many ways. Um, so right around 12,000 years, there's a pretty dramatic shift as we move out of the Pleistocene and into what's called the Holocene. Uh, so this is something that geologists mark as we're, we're thinking about periods of time. And, and climate is one of the big shifts there. And that's kind of at 30,000 feet abstract. What we see on the ground is that there's a number of changes to the worlds that people live in, whether it's megafaunal extinction or whether it's the receding of the seas in Mesopotamia that are going to contribute to decisions about should we pursue more sedentary agriculture? Should agriculture shift in its form? And then you know, there's been some speculation on things like, does the state form start to emerge in that period out of what people are doing with agriculture? Uh, so the anthropologist and political scientist James Scott recently wrote a book on this, really trying to make the case that that shift to grain-based agriculture in, in the Fertile Crescent is going to be huge to the development of the state there. The feedback that comes out of that in turn is that agriculture is going to start to transform land cover and atmospheric chemistry through the release of methane into the atmosphere 
and through diminishing CO2 uptake by plants through deforestation and the clearing of grasslands that otherwise would have taken carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and stored it. So just a quick question. So there's this enormous epochal shift in, in human history. Humans, what, are 100,000, 130,000 years old, something along those lines? Yeah. There's like these plus or minus 10,000 years. So, you know, we're, we're nomadic roughly for 90,000 years. And this a normal, enormous shift, as big a shift as the Industrial Revolution happens when people start to settle. Is there, are there any sort of causal explanations as to why that happens? Is it because, you know, the nomads start, you know, murdering all the 20-foot antelope and the 45-foot bears and everything like that, and they have to settle? Or are there climate shifts that lead to settlement? What is the general consensus? And obviously, I should just make uh, make clear, like, the, the the evidence that we're relying on is often, you know, geologic, it's it's ar- archaeological, it's, it's sort of kind of difficult sources to get our, our minds around. So these these arguments are constantly changing. But what is the present consensus on why human beings made that, you know, apocal shift? So there's still a little bit of debate here, but there's been quite a few people who've made the argument that shifting climatic conditions and the way that that manifests on the ground, again, whether that is more difficulty in foraging in various places in Mesopotamia, to borrow James Scott's argument here, uh, whether the sort of dropping sea levels are going to make particular farming techniques that predate the state more difficult and are going to require more intensification. Um, So there's at least some arguments here that sort of shifting climatic conditions put pressure on the ways in which people got their food, were able to hunt, existed in tandem with animals, were able to get access to water, things like that, and that those shifts create one pressure point. It's not the whole story, but it's an important piece of context for that story, I think. So you were briefly mentioning at the beginning this sort of climactic effects of this shift. So what are some of the, what happens? So human beings settle, and now does the earth start getting warmer? Does things start getting colder? Are we out of an ice age? Are we in an ice age? Uh, What's going on here? So this is a period that's uh, called an interglacial. So between ice ages, which we've been sitting in an interglacial for a while now, are we um, in an interglacial period now? Yeah, like, currently. Okay, so um, we're between ice ages, like macro uh, yes. historical time. Yes, yeah, okay. and and there's, depending on who you ask, and I'll get to a specific person on this in a second, there's, it's been hypothesized that human activity may have actually sort of put off the onset of the next, of the glacial uh, that would be coming next to the glaciation that would come next. So, so one person who's done this, the geologist William Ruddeman is going to say, okay, so we have our big climatic shift around 12,000 years ago, and then agriculture is maybe a result of that, is something that we can sort of trace connections certainly between it. And then about 5,000 years before present, uh, between five and 8,000 years ago, we start to see shifts in atmospheric chemistry. So there's more methane there than scientists hypothesize would be there, which they attribute to widespread rice cultivation, particularly inundated rice cultivation, uh, which tends to release methane into the atmosphere from decaying vegetable matter uh, underneath the flooded fields. And then we see increasing 
carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere around the same period. So there's been arguments, what's sometimes called the early Anthropocene hypothesis, that we really start to see the first measurable and important registers of human impact on the planet's climate systems between 5,000 and 8,000 years ago. So that, and farming is really what's key to that story. So that shift to farming ends up having pretty dramatic consequences uh, for quite literally the rest of the planet. And, and relatively uh, a relatively quick amount of time, roughly 7,000-ish years, between four and 7,000-ish years in, in macrogeological time, that's obviously an inc- very, very quick. And this is before in industrialization and things like that. So, And correct me for, if I'm wrong, but it does seem that like from the very beginning, human beings have had an incredible amount of impact on climactic conditions. Uh, and I have actually a question related to that. Um, so is, are we in the Bronze Age now? Bronze Age is a little later. What age are we in? When we're talking 5,000-ish years ago. We're, we're, Egypt at this point has dynasties, mm-hmm. but this is roughly 2,000-ish years before the Old Testament, right? So what age are we in when we're talking about when we really see the first human effects of climate change around five to 8,000 years ago? I mean, so this is the point in, in terms of people who've taken, say, like a Western Civ or a world history class. In, in many cases, this is right around some of the start points, of, right. of those stories uh, that we're telling. So to a degree, you know, this moment when, when written history is sort of bursting onto the scene where, where we're starting to talk about civilizations and all of that jazz, we're, we're at a moment where there's measurable human impacts on the global climate system. In terms of scale, though, and this is really the important thing, and it just always needs to be said, When you look at the chart of fluctuations uh, from the mid-Holocene right up until you have the mass consumption of fossil fuels, there are fluctuations that are going to happen. There have been arguments about how much human activity is responsible for that. And then after 1850 and again after 1950, that's where you really see the curve for atmospheric temperature or for atmospheric carbon dioxide, methane, a number of other things really start to spike. So there is fluctuation. These fluctuations have you know, catastrophic effects or dramatic effects in many cases on human societies, um, but they're all within a band of relative normalcy. And then post-1850, uh, we start to burst out of that band. And really post-1950, you're going to see the big spike um, that we're living in right now. To sort of give people, I think, a little more clarification maybe on on what Rudiman's hypothesis is here. Uh, my understanding is basically looking at past ice ages and interglacial periods, what you see is a cycle where carbon emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, or carbon dioxide concentrations, I guess, in the atmosphere, methane concentrations, uh, you know, go down in periods where there's heavy glaciation, and then you see a rise uh, that corresponds with the end of an ice age, and then it goes back down again. And what's happening now, what started to happen five, 6,000 years ago, is instead of continuing to decline during the interglacial period leading up to what would be another ice age, uh, the decline isn't happening anymore. And that's where there's something clearly, it seems like clearly broken about this cycle that that seems to correspond with, 
human activity, right? Is that right? Yep, that's exactly it. At, at the core of it, and, and he phrases this well in the popular book, uh, Plows, Plagues, and Petroleum, that he wrote on the topic, really says that- Triple what, P. Triple P. Um, <laughs> what clued me in to something happening for him is, is that there's this missing decline in concentrations, uh, that things should have been happening based on the models from previous periods and that they stop. So yeah, that's exactly right. And then he tries to figure out why does the, why isn't the thing that we expected happening, happening, uh, and agriculture is the answer he comes up and, with. And a lot of it is, I mean, the methane sort of comes, the uh, hypothesis is that it's from widespread rice cultivation. The carbon dioxide is more just deforestation, basically, right? To clear clear land for agriculture, right? Yep. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, I was thinking about this as I was, I was reading uh, about this hypothesis. And I, I mean, we're going to talk about this piece that you wrote, which is uh, a very interesting sort of uh, microcosm of uh, some of the things that happen when uh, climate shifts abruptly. Um, but one of the stories, like my background is, is in Islamic history. And one of the stories that you cover, one of the big events that you cover in Islamic history is the Mongol conquests. Uh, and there are there's a lot of evidence that the Mongol conquests were fueled by the medieval warm period, which created a, a, an environment in Mongolia that allowed that society to to build up to the point where you know it could it, it could erupt onto the rest of Eurasia. But there's also this theory that uh, Genghis Khan's conquest basically killed so many people uh, in Eurasia that it caused reforestation on a scale large enough to bring the medieval warm period, help bring the medieval warm period to an end. And it's sort of one of these uh, interesting theories to think about how much of an effect humans have on the environment. I wonder if you have any other, uh, you know, kind of stories like that or, or you know, things that, that people may, events that people may uh, know about from history but haven't considered from the perspective of uh, these kinds of effects. And just uh, let me just very briefly. One thing that I think of immediately is the flood in the in the Bible, you know, and these these massive flooding. So, are there any? Just to piggyback on Derek's question, are there any uh, any other things like that that we find in ancient sources that seem to indicate these sorts of climactic shifts? Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's funny. There's almost these patterns that repeat, and you can trace them out over thousands of years of of human history and whether it is climate and then sort of invasions of semi-nomadic peoples. Um, so for the Bronze Age collapse, which inaugurates the dark a, a period of dark ages, as it will be called, um, there's a debate now over whether shifting climatic conditions led to instability in late Bronze Age societies. And then this group called the Sea Peoples, um, the Phoenicians, are, right? Um, so not the Phoenicians for that. No, I mean, the, they're just referred to as the Sea Peoples. Yeah, the oh, I thought the, the Philistines may have been among them, but um, oh, that's what I mean—the yeah. Philistines, right? And this is like Linear B and all those. Yes, it, okay. And so there's a story there in which, like, oh wow, like what leads to this dark age? It maybe it's climate that did it. Um, to Derek's point, as you get towards 
the Black Death, one of the arguments Rudiman is going to make is that so many people die in the Black Death that you get field abandonment and reforestation at such a dramatic level that you see drawdowns in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. There's a similar argument that's made. Uh, there were a couple of geographers, uh, Mark Maslin and Simon Lewis, who made an argument that the Anthropocene, this newly proposed geologic epoch in which humans are the dominant force shaping the Earth systems, that you should locate it in 1610 to correspond with the with a massive reforestation of the Americas as a result of European conquest and, and the massive population declines that resulted from European colonialism in the Americas, uh, which they trace to a carbon dioxide minima found in an ice core in 1610. So essentially to say conquest starts 1492, enough people die and enough land is sort of retaken up by carbon sequestering vegetation that it makes the world a little bit colder. Uh, and it decreases the level of carbon dioxide. There's huge debates over that. But essentially, the story you told, Derek, is one that at multiple points in time, uh, whether it's plague, whether it is population loss through war, imperialism, genocide, things like that, that this has effects beyond just the human histories and that we can read it in the landscape and that those landscape scale changes uh, might be significant enough to register in atmospheric chemistry at a global scale. Is there anything to take from that? And I don't. I'm I'm, I'm getting way ahead, probably of of the conversation here. And also, by the way, I want to let uh, my uh, any professors of mine uh, who are listening. Uh, I, I realize it's Genghis Khan, and I called him Genghis Khan, and and I apologize for that. I'm mortified again. Something about this show makes me keep mispronouncing words that I used to know <laughs> how to pronounce. Apologies. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the uh, the I, one of the things that as I was reading about the Rudiman's hypothesis, one of the things that struck me was um, the power, in a sense, of the landscape to recover and recapture carbon if you do certain things. And I mean, you know, some of the, it, these, these cases that we're talking about are sort of unintentional. They're, you know, mass die-offs basically. Um, but if you, you took a, a, an sort of objectively kind of intentional approach to recovering carbon sequestering vegetation, the extent to which that can, can be effective. And I wonder if that's still the case, or have we broken that? I mean, has it, you know, has the industrial revolution sort of taken us to a place where that's no longer a, a, a solution to the problem? So it, it's funny, you're almost hitting something that's ripped from the headlines in that there's stories every couple of months where people figure out that trees eat carbon dioxide or, or that prairies <laughs> eat carbon dioxide, no, right? really? Um, and, and then you have uh, usually some tech genius who comes along and is like, oh, I got a great idea. We're totally going to solve climate change through my tree planting scheme. <laughs> and um, in many cases, these sort of like puff pieces on it uh, and tend towards the ridiculous because then if, if you sort of do the math for what they're proposing, it's like, ah, oh, well, we'd have to reforest an area the size of India of the Indian subcontinent <laughs> to make this guy's scheme work. Um, so there's a way in which these can tend towards the absurd. But at a more serious level, 
you know, almost all of the IPCC reports for a long time as they're doing forecasts, a lot of the government planning that's done even at this point will talk about negative emissions technologies. Um, and in some like fevered eco-modernist imaginations, they're imagining carbon dioxide scrubbers on coal plants so we can just right. keep business as usual cranking uh, without right. pause. Right. A technological but, solution, basically. Yeah. yeah. But then there's, there's other things that really do draw uh, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and it's like, prairie restoration, um, reforestation, although one of the sort of scary moments that we're in right now, forests have long been carbon sinks, so things that absorb, but there's a, some of the shifts as a result of climate change recently, and, and in particular, large fires in the Intermountain West in the U.S. have made some of those, fi some of those forests into carbon sources rather than sinks. So landscape right. scale change can make a difference. Um, it can't do it on its own. Um, this is one of these things where like, it can be good, but those sort of feverish articles that come out every right, now and right. again that are like, hey, put a tree in your yard and then we're all sorted and you know, buy a Hummer, all's good. Um, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, we're going to have to give up some sort of consumption. But let's, I want to return a little bit to an earlier period. Uh, and I want to ask a question before we get to this really interesting article you wrote. Because one of the most popular, you know, stories about history that has really taken off in the last 20 years is why the the quote-unquote West rose and defeated the so-called rest. And, you know, I think Jared Diamond talked about this, and a lot of it had to do with environmental factors like disease. But are there any new climactic explanations that uh, essentially argue in favor of uh, push factors in terms of explaining European colonialism around the world? Um, because it seems like that would be uh, an important thing that would sort of force colonialism. But I was wondering if, if that I might just be wrong and, you know, there's really nothing there. So uh, uh, there are a few things there. Exactly what it looks like ends up being often, in many cases, like not quite definitive or kind of weird on the ground. Um, so there's been some work on what the Little Ice Age, which is the moment of uh, relative global cooling. Um, it doesn't happen everywhere in the world, tends to be particularly strong in Northwest Europe, uh, is going to do right at the moment of colonial expansion. In some cases, there's some arguments that particular European states, the Dutch to a degree, the English, uh, begin to look elsewhere to satisfy resource needs or begin to look to trade uh, to deal with issues of domestic production, that can get really, you know, there's, there's noise and signal mixed in there to a significant degree. Um, in terms of the actual colonial projects that occur, climate tends to be really important to, lot, to a lot of them. Uh, there's a historian, Sam White, who wrote a book on just sort of the, the miserable encounters that Europeans had uh, in the Caribbean and, and North America as a result of doing it in the Little Ice Age. So heavy frosts in Florida uh, as a thing that just make life miserable for a number of uh, Spanish colonists in the course of these things. So it, it's not quite a push, um, but it's something that's consistently shaping 
what happens on the ground. Uh, a lot of European fantasies about what they're going to find when they go other places are deeply climatic. Um, so to a Edenic, degree, right? It's like an image of the Garden of Eden and sort of this paradisical Caribbean-esque space. Or is that incorrect? Or is that also already post-colonization? Because I remember learning that, but years and years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. I, this is like a tiny little quibble. Uh, most of them try to steer away from Eden and towards the promised land because they're afraid that colonists will get the idea into their head if it's Eden that they don't need to work. Oh, interesting. Um, but they need it to be post-fall. That way they can still demand lots and lots of labor out of the people <laughs> they're sending over. I mean, it's, it's really kind of cynical when you see it written out in these pamphlets in which they're like, not quite Eden, but kind of the promised land. Very important that all of you are going to work when you get here. They emphasize that over and over again. Um, love it. Sh- love, lo- love the United States, or rather the proto-United States. Good <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, but their fantasy, they divide the world into climate zones in which there's a temperate zone, torrid zone, and frigid zone, and then occasionally make sort of latitudinal distinctions in there. So English people, for example, are going to look at uh, Virginia, the settlement along the James River, now Jamestown, and say, well, it's at roughly the same latitude as Persia, and there's silk in Persia, and we want silk of our own, so that way we don't have to import it, so we should get silk in Virginia. Um, They come up with ideas, I mean, they try to justify, like, New England is a great wine-growing region, uh, and Newfoundland is a potential (laughs) wine-growing region, you know, at times it gets a little bit silly, Um, but climate is, it's a huge part of the sort of theories that Europeans are bringing with them when they colonize. Um, In terms of the actuality of the push factor, um, it tends to get messy on the ground for reasons that are related to what I'm going to talk about when we get to the article, Uh, namely that the Little Ice Age doesn't affect everyone in exactly the same ways. So actually, why don't we just get into the article? So this is an article you wrote um, and that you published in Environmental History titled Cow Trials, Climate Change, and the Causes of Violence. So why don't you just talk about um, what the article says? Uh, So the article takes on this very weird moment that happens in a rebellion that's going to kick off civil wars that go all the way around the English Atlantic world, but this weird moment in 1641 in which a bunch of rebels in Ireland are alleged to have taken English breeds of cows, staged mock trials, uh, asked, uh, charged the cows with unspecified offenses, convicted them, offered them benefit of clergy, which was a way to mitigate death sentences. Uh, That's essentially a legacy of pre-Reformation law and was the most common way that people got out of being executed in this period. Um, But you had to read to do it. So they hold open a Bible in front of the cow's faces and the cows are unable to read the appropriate psalm, often nicknamed the neck verse that would Maybe save them from their Maybe they were able and they just didn't want to. Has anybody considered that? I, you know, no one I've come across yet has said, you know, the cows really <laughs> felt that they deserve their punishment. And they, they so were they, just unimpressed with yeah. what they were being told. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't read and then they're executed in an unspecified way uh, and English people get very upset about this. 
And this is a story that historians try to grapple with for a really long time to be like, why did people do this bizarre thing with cows? And my contribution to the story is to think about what role climate and agricultural change and the imposition of a commercial economy played on this. And so in part, I'm taking on this idea that's shown up in a lot of places that something happens with climate and then people do stuff in response. This idea that it's sort of immediate cause and effect. Um, Climate has changed, a society collapses. Climate has changed, people get mad and revolt. And this has come up in a number of cases by really well-meaning people, both sort of popularizers and a few historians who want us to take climate change seriously. And so they're like, hey, if we don't do something about climate change, maybe people will revolt. Um, or maybe there will be increasing global conflict or whatever it may be. What I argue in the article is there needs to be the middle step where we think about the conditions that make people either more resilient or more vulnerable to particular climatic shocks. And so the argument I make is that English colonialism changed the character of Irish agriculture, particularly the way that cows were kept in this period, and that the imposition of a commercial and market economy made people far more susceptible to debt crises, which are going to strike in a number of cases. And so that essentially when cold weather hits, it leads to collapses in the livestock market and to these debt spikes that reverberate out from that. And so people get affected much more so by cold weather as a result of changes brought through colonialism and the desire to create a commercial economy than they would have otherwise. Right. And this reflects, I think this reflects just broadly speaking for people who aren't historians, God bless you. But for people who aren't (laughs) historians, there's a recent turn, I would say, generally speaking, in disaster studies and climate studies to basically argue that there's no such thing as a quote unquote natural disaster, that these things occur in the world. And it would be ridiculous to deny their exogenous shocks, but that they're so affected by social relations on the ground, by capitalism, by real material relationships that are ultimately, I think, uh, defined by humanity. And I think we saw this most recently with Hurricane Ida, and and we saw it, um, you know, a while ago with Hurricane Katrina, and we see it repeatedly over time, that natural disasters is actually a misnomer because there's nothing natural about them. Exactly. Exactly. And so then, uh, kind of the final thing I conclude is that One of the reasons people may have decided it was a good idea to put cows on trial is because they rightly interpreted them as symbols, and in particular this new breed of English cows, as symbols of the various other things being done to them that they disliked and to moments when things go really bad um, if there's a harsh weather year. And so the idea here is that People are perceiving when this stuff happens that sometimes people get mad and revolt or engage in acts of violence. And we could say, oh, it's due to climate, but to some degree, they might also be resulting against those unnatural disaster conditions, uh, Danny, that you just talked about, that they're revolting against the conditions that made them vulnerable, revolting against the conditions, say, that made people vulnerable to a hurricane, to a drought, um, or in this case, uh, to a series of, of harsh winters. Um, so why don't, why don't, uh, so what would you say the ultimate 
thing that we could take away from your research, which focuses uh, more on the early modern period for our own understanding today. You know, of course, everyone always says that all history is contemporary history. And it's not a shock that, you know, climate studies and climate change has in the last 10, 15 years become a real hot topic. I think environmental history is one of the most cited journals in the historical profession. Um, But so I'm just kind of curious as someone who's, you know, probably a, a millennial around Derek and Mai's age. Derek is a boomer. I'm sorry, but um, Gen X, people, <laughs> come on, I'm not a boomer. Jesus. <laughs> but people, you know, what could we take from studying these these conditions that are so different in some sense, but also mirror what's going on today? What are not the lessons to be learned to be trite, but what are some of the ways we can learn about how to think about climate change, how to think about what's going to happen in our lifetimes, what has already happened in our lifetimes? Yeah. I- I think one of the key things to take away from this example in in particular is that there are ways in which our our political economic system can either increase or decrease the amount of vulnerability that people are feeling. Um, Exposure to debt and the ability of debt to just completely ruin people is a big part of the story that I told and producing things for markets in this case leads to people making decisions that make them abandon ways of sort of buffering against natural shocks that had been sitting around for a long time. And so they increase, right? The, the impact of this of, uh, year's weather connected to this broader climatic shift is what it is. Um, but the severity of it can kind of vary based on those social conditions. I think in our moment, and there's a real danger in this, um, we occasionally will treat our social and economic and political systems as though they are fixed and climate is the only thing that's changing. And so we say, oh, it's getting hotter. I, you know, Isn't that terrible? It's going to imperil our ability to grow GDP in the same way. Or uh, (laughs) conclude this new trade deal, whatever it might be. Oh, what will its impact be on the market? You know, we sort of hold our social, economic, and political systems as fixed and unchanging and then channel climate anxiety through what if the climate doesn't let us do all of these things politically, socially, and economically that we've been doing before? Um, Hopefully, one of the lessons of these is that, of course, you know, politics the economic system and society are not natural, um, that they can be changed and that we might consider adapting those uh, to the climatic conditions that we face in order to minimize the amount of human suffering that encounters. For me, that's a big takeaway I think people should focus on. Speaking of that, why don't we turn to that fabled year of 1850? Yeah. Uh, Keith, what happens in 1850? And is it fair to say that literally capitalism has destroyed the earth? Uh, (laughs) Not a leading question at all. (laughs) Not a leading question at all. Uh, So there's a number of people who have. So I I guess I mentioned the term Anthropocene before. Some people have said, hey, that doesn't capture what's going on. We need to call this the capitalocene. Um, By calling it the capitalocene, and and Jason Moore is really one of the huge people for doing this, that's what's going to let us really understand the causes of our current uh, moment of ecological crises. Uh, that the moment in which all of the earth is being subjected to the needs of capital, to becoming a source of extracting value and extracting profit, 
that's what's going to do it. Um, 1850 is the moment when you get sort of mature, a first wave of mature industrialization. So there's steam engines going back to the beginning of the 18th century. And there are fantasies about using steam engines to alter the climate to make colonial settlement easier, uh, one of which I'm writing about for the next book. That's like an evil supervillain plan, you know? It's interesting that that sort of became a trope, that supervillains, what they want to do is uh, change the climate. Uh, So Darwin's granddad, in a poem um, that was panned by his romantic compatriots as really (laughs) awful and aesthetically terrible, uh, fantasizes about making Scotland uh, into a warm and lovely climate, he fantasizes about flying steam machines. Uh, the person who goes on to be the architect of the U.S. Capitol, Benjamin Latrobe, uh, one of his acts prior to that was designing the waterworks for the city of Philadelphia. And in his proposal to do so, he thinks he's going to uh, either mitigate or reduce the severity of yellow fever by cooling the city by shooting jets of cold water up into the air every summer. And so, there, I mean, there Makes are these real... To me. Yeah. <laughs> American prestige endorses the original yeah, plan for Philadelphia. Cold water in the air. It'll fix <laughs> yeah. everything. Yeah. The founders were fantasizing about changing the climate. Um, but in all seriousness, they were. They had these ideas of making a climate safe uh, for European bodies um, based on theories of differential racial vulnerability to right. disease and things like that. And, and so... You know, imperialism uh, technologies developed in order to abet it and also to increase production at home. They both actually increase the amount of fossil fuels that we burn and the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, But they're also bound up sort of conceptually and ideologically with this idea that we can use technology to create the planet we want. Um, with we the being planet we deserve <laughs> really narrowly in that case for the interest of you know mostly European colonizers, right? Make the planet great again, kind of situation. I I, I, I want to say I think the planet that we want and the planet we deserve are two very different <laughs> things. But yes, okay. Uh, And actually, Keith, speaking of that, I actually have a question. One of the um, the major new trends in kind of Marxist theory is eco-Marxism. I don't want to go into that necessarily because I think that would be a whole conversation, but could you give a little bit of a pricey of what does Marx say about climate? What does Marx say about climate and value, if anything? Yeah, so uh, there's some debate about exactly how much we should draw from Marx here. The people who are going to read Marx as having a lot to say on climate are really going to look at this idea of metabolic rift. Um, And so they're going to go to Marx thinking about value coming from the earth and thinking about metabolism as a productive process and, and the means by which things are produced. And they're going to read Marx as saying that capitalism introduces a metabolic rift um, through the commodification and abstraction of everything in nature. And the eco-Marxists, I think, who sort of do the best with this and really push this the hardest, uh, are going to make the case that while humans have always sort of extracted from the earth and have assigned value to other than human things, um, 
capitalism both intensifies that process and it introduces abstraction uh, to such a great degree that it creates a rift in, in these metabolic systems by which we engage with the other than human world. Uh, and are there people who just say that Marx doesn't really have much to say about climate? Uh, yeah. So the other side of that is to say, yeah, Marx is talking about metabolic rift. Yeah. Marx was reading some soil scientists. Marx did read quite a few soil scientists and was, and well, was who thinking doesn't? about it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's light reading uh, in the evenings. Why not? Um, you know, people can't see these shelves behind me, but it's all soil <laughs> studies. Yeah. It's all soil all, science. All politics. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the argument there is that, yes, he's saying metabolism, um, but, but he's not really sort of embedding that in natural processes that the metabolic rift there is going to be more a description of kind of economy than ecology. Um, and, and there's sort of debates on this from people who are trying to take Marx seriously either way. Uh, and, and then the, the question is, if he does take it seriously, great. How do you build out Marx to fit our present? If he doesn't take it seriously, then the question is, okay, you know, what alterations do you need to make? Is this still a usable concept uh, if we're going to apply Marx to think through our present situation? Or do we need something else uh, in addition? Are there any people on the capitalist side of the 19th century who are taking climate seriously? Um are there any people who, uh, is there any thinker who's worried about this extractivism and what it might do? Uh, I don't actually know much about that. So I was curious if there was anything there. I, I mean, so there's a lot who are worried about environmental consequences of productive activity in various ways. Uh, soil exhaustion is an obsession, um, in the United States in particular, right, there are government agencies formed just with the idea of like obsessing over soil um, to the point where, you know, if you're thinking about the formation of American empire, and, and Daniel Immervar does a really good job covering this, um, wars over the guano islands in the 19th century. So guano are, is, uh, could you explain what guano is very uh, quickly? So guano is calcified bird droppings. Um, that are going to be nutrient-rich enough that you can use as fertilizer before we figure out how to generate fertilizer from something called the Haber-Bosch process, which allows us to kind of ar artificially fix nitrogen in the 20th century um, using uh, we fossil had three fuels. Hour, we had a three-hour episode on the Haber-Bosch process, so don't worry. <laughs> Listeners are very familiar with that. Yeah, so it was a bonus for... Bonus for subscribers. It, was, yeah. it really went over well. Subscribe now for yeah. you know 20th century chemistry and agroeconomics lessons. Um, but yet prior to this technical process that gets created in the 20th century, uh, you essentially fertilize with manure. Um, and you can try to make it a circular process locally using human and animal waste. Um, but in the U.S., uh, an extractive, the extractive agriculture of the 19th century kind of runs out ahead of replenishing the soil even then. And you get these colonial outposts um, that are harvested through coerced labor, um, in many cases through newly freed African Americans being put into these horrible coercive conditions, Chinese uh, immigrants being put into horrible coercive conditions. I mean, just think about how miserable it is for your job to be mining a rock of shit. 
Um, literally right. in the middle of nowhere, far from hospitals, else, right. far from health thing. If, if you fall and break your leg, you could get gangrene and just die. It's a horrible condition. And I think Imravar, and correct me if I'm wrong, basically sees this as the seed of America's overseas empire. It's archipelagic uh, empire that really takes off in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the key stories. And so, you know, that's essentially an imperial solution to worrying about a problem of nature. Uh, there are early complaints, including from manufacturers and coal burners, about what coal might do um, and whether it might change the atmosphere in some way. They don't quite get to climate um, in the way that we would hope. And, and then the question essentially becomes like, can you find a sacrifice zone in some cases? Can you find people who you just say like, well, we don't really care about them. So like, let's let them suffer the consequences of this. That was, uh, that was going to be sort of my question. Cause the, the idea of um, agriculture changing the soil and depleting the soil is fundamentally about, you know, how can we keep making money out of this, out of this stuff? And I was wondering, you know, if to the extent to which anybody uh, was thinking in the, the 19th century about maybe burning this stuff isn't so great, like not not thinking about it in terms of climate, but just in terms of the health effects, like, uh, you know, what happens in a city that's full of s smoke and, you know, disgusting kind of uh, pollution, you know, if there was anybody thinking about it, even in those terms, which uh, I, I mean, I, it sounds like there, there were uh, to some extent. Yeah, I mean, so there are people thinking about the evils of smoke pollution um, in London, which is the city where the most coal is burned in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, there's a book creatively titled Fumifugium from this guy, John Evelyn, writing in 1662. And he wants to build a giant ring of flowers. Um, so build the flower <laughs> wall around like London. Midsummer. <laughs> yes, in, in order to, to get rid of smoke. Um, and to eliminate the harmful impacts of coal smoke pollution. You have other people who will come up with various mitigation strategies, in some cases technology to try to reduce the quantity, so sort of early scrubbing devices which work to varying degrees. But then one of the sort of disturbing adaptations to it, um, and this happens in early modern London, it'll happen in 19th and 20th century cities, you have this push to associate pollution with productivity and with good jobs and with a robust and growing economy. And so to some degree, you have people saying, this is going to kill me. You know, I'm, I'm coughing up this awful black stuff. My kids don't breathe really well and we'll later call it asthma. And to say, what, this is the cost of modernity. This is, this is the cost of wealth, of prosperity of the future. So, you know, to go back to Danny's question, like, what's a capitalist solution? I mean, one of them is to say, like, hey, you know, these floods are bad, pollution is bad, fires, scorching heat waves, these are all bad, but maybe we should learn to love these things and to embrace them as the signs of our progress uh, over, over poverty from the one unshakable solution. I, you know, there's tech responses that you get from sort of these captains of industry and others. But then there's also this cultural response, which is to say, hey, yeah, this is bad, but it's also why you have jobs and can buy all these consumer, consumer baubles. Aren't you so happy to be breathing smoke? 
I'm not just hacking up my own lungs. I'm hacking up freedom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it sounds like capitalism has a death drive inherent to its growth politics. Yeah, I mean, the, the, in, in all like they, yeah, they go together. So let's turn to the 20th century because, you know, the 20th century, particularly the first half of it, um, when you're looking from a North Atlantic uh, perspective, and we'll do that for a second before, you know, turning to the global South, for, uh, is, is an era of these two incredibly destructive world wars, World War One and World War Two, um, And I can't imagine that the amount of death and destruction that these wars cause, um, in, not only in the North Atlantic world, but to a large degree in the North Atlantic world and, and areas of the Pacific and, uh, and, and China and Japan uh, and Korea as well. Um, I was wondering, do, do those have any climactic effects? Do people start thinking about climate in new ways? What are the effects of these, you know, the, the second 30 years war, as some people call it. Yeah. So there's, there's two things to think about. And, and to some degree, I want to locate really the big climatic effects immediately after those wars and in the response to it. Right. 1950, uh, you said 1950 earlier. Yeah. I was curious about that. Yeah. Um, so there, there are concerns in the Soviet Union. There are some scientists who start trying to think about what effects industrialization might have on the climate just after the First World War, and, and there are ideas that are percolating in the 20th century. So in the U.S., from the 19th century through the Second World War, there's this idea that rain follows the plow, um, and that sort of agriculture will change climate, and that sort of growing agriculture that can support the huge armies of the First and Second World War um, will also tangibly improve the climate of the arid West. What about the Dust Bowl? How does the Dust Bowl fit into that? Yes. <laughs> the Dust Bowl... So it turns out they were wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the Dust Bowl, to a significant degree, is a consequence of saying, like, well, rain will follow the plow, so we should plow every place. Um, that doesn't... <laughs> Doesn't work out great. Um, the great historian of the Dust Bowl, Donald Worcester, uh, is very explicit and says the Dust Bowl is the disaster of capitalism. Um, and it's important to note, uh, there's a great book by this environmental sociologist, Hannah Hallman, uh, Dust Bowls of Empire, that makes the point that in Australia, in South Africa, uh, in the United States, in many places where there is a European colonial presence or the presence of a just barely post-colonial, sort of settler colonial state, that there are dust bowls emerging everywhere at roughly the exact same time. So this really is a problem, not just of the U.S., but of sort of a global capitalist system. And people are starting to wonder, um, can the conditions of agricultural production that have been celebrated as modern and as necessary to keep the bank off your back and things like that, not result in horrifying world-spanning disasters in which we all choke on dust. Um, so that's the context of the war. I mean, food production in the war and the agriculture that's going to sustain that as people are starting to think about climate there matters a ton. And then emerging out of the war um, in the 50s, climate is really going to become a fixed idea. Um, some of the historians of climate as an idea are going to locate it in Cold War big science to a huge like degree. cybernetics and stuff? Like, what are we talking yeah, about here? Uh, kind of similar processes. So there's an Eisenhower era meeting in which people are trying to think about whether there is 
global weather patterns connected with temperature, with atmospheric chemistry. And then they start to wonder, could this be put to use as a weapon? Um, so in the U.S., they start to wonder, hey, could we completely screw up weather all over the Soviet Union and create supervillain stuff? Yeah, around the same time, uh, Keith, I don't know if you know, but the U.S. was also investigating a death ray. So it's interesting. There's a lot of like supervillain stuff going on in the 1950s. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, but it, I mean, in this case, both the technology that enables thinking about climate, so like the Mauna Loa Observatory, some of these great data sets we get for, say, like measuring atmospheric carbon dioxide and atmospheric chemistry, they emerge out of Cold War science, and people are quite explicitly fantasizing about the capacity to weaponize these new discoveries um, to, you know, make it rain in the wrong place, to create droughts, things like that, to quite literally engineer the climate to suit the needs of a Cold War American empire to make climate create Pax Americana at the same time that they're having these fantasies. So 1952 is the current uh, sort of accepted or proposed start date for the Anthropocene. It corresponds with something called the Great Acceleration. And really the Great Acceleration tracks to a huge degree on post-World War II American empire. Um, and it can be seen in everything from massive upticks in global plastics use and consumption that's being driven to a huge degree by the U.S. Um, domesticated chicken bones appearing on all seven continents, something that comes out of the food systems of American empire, right? A whole new way to think about Tom Friedman's world is flat is to imagine that, yeah, uh, the remains of that flat world are also evidence of like a massive change to the biogeochemical systems that sustain life. So I think it's really what emerges out of the wars um, that's going to be a huge part of where we are now and the massive uptick in fossil fuel consumption, plastics use, uh, deforestation, uh, water pollution, soil degradation. So much of that is going to emerge post-World War II in the Cold War. The flat world is littered with chicken bones. That's that's a good. Uh, <laughs> that's the sequel. Good way to look Grim at it. image, isn't it? So, so that's that's really interesting. Um, but let's turn to the global south for a second, because obviously after World War II is the great age of decolonization. It's the great age of new nationalisms um, coming up out of the the, the detritus of European empire. Uh, and along with uh, decolonization comes a process of what at the time was called modernization or development or industrialization, a bunch of different terms for it. Uh, and these, of course, also have climate effects. So what's going on in the decolonizing world? And then I want to bring us to the question of, this is the big question today. The North Atlantic has been industrializing for centuries. Other areas of the world, partially due to North Atlantic colonization, haven't been able to modernize or develop or whatever you call it. And that leads to, you know, a, a diffuse um, impact on who is today, you know, um, producing too much carbon. So could you talk about decolonization and carbon effects and then maybe shift that into the question of basically China and India today and this big question about development in uh, 2021? Yeah. So it, it depends on sort of where we're looking at decolonization, but in a number of places you have an emphasis on infrastructure building. Um, so India is a really good example of this. Uh, in a famous speech, Jawaharlal Nehru is going to pronounce that dams 
are the temples of modern India. Um, a few years later, he's going to recant that and say, no, it's not, they're not good. Uh, these engineers have ruined everything. Uh, they've introduced the disease of gigantism. Um, too much big development is creating problems. But there are huge dam building projects that in many cases that sort of begin under colonial regimes and then will happen again after colonial regimes. So the Aswan High Dam is a good example of this. In Egypt, you have a lot of dam building that's going to happen in post-colonial countries. You have efforts at import substitution and the development of domestic industry that's going to be able to work on world markets. You have the development of energy companies um, that are supposed to create some independence that will correspond with decolonization. So some of this is about how do you fit into these world systems. And there are debates within those countries that I think are really important not to minimize here. So again, in, in Nehru's case, he himself is going to say like, uh, you know, the gigantic dam building may not have been such a great idea. Maybe we should think about a solution that is not just kind of too indebted to development patterns in Europe or North America um, with petroleum, with agriculture. You know, there's going to be big contests in a lot of these countries over what should be done. The institutions of the U.S. global order that will follow in many cases, and the World Bank in particular being a very important one, are going to play a huge role in what infrastructure gets built and in what development looks like. So even as you have decolonization, um, our institutions are going to matter a lot in that story. Right. And maybe, are you referring to the 70s and McNamara's leadership of the World Bank? Um, and, and maybe you could just expand on that for a little bit, because I think the 70s are also crucial for ideas of population control. So just to give everyone um, who doesn't know, Robert McNamara was the Ford executive who became the uh, Secretary of Defense uh, and is uh, one of the principals responsible for the Vietnam War. And after he leaves the Johnson administration in the 1970s, he becomes head of the World Bank and and Keith, correct me if I'm wrong, but he becomes a very important actor in terms of population control, which is a big thing in the 1970s. So maybe you could talk about that for a second as a little tangent, because I think it's really crucial to emphasize how much the North Atlantic core, and particularly the United States, continue to influence developments in the global South. Yeah. So I, I think for the World Bank, one of the key things to remember in these cases is that a lot of that huge infrastructure like dam building, it depends upon financing and also the exchange of engineers. Um, so Nehru, for example, just to go back to him, uh, as he's making an argument for post-colonial independence, as part of the Third World Movement in particular, he's going to explain how dams are being built and what all of these American engineers are doing in India, building dams. Uh, and he has this great metaphor that I'm blanking on at the moment. Uh, he calls them either something like you know, like a gentle shove to help us get going into modernity or, or like a crutch that we use and then drop away as we learn to run on our own. Um, but you have both sort of the World Bank and institutions like it that are actually funding these projects that are going to say, hey, the way to modernize correctly is to build large dams, is to build particular kinds of infrastructure that will enable particular kinds of agriculture, particular energy regimes, things like that. 
Um, and then also American expertise in many cases in the form of engineers. That tends to happen in a lot of cases where it's sort of post-colonial British possessions. Um, so U.S. engineers get greeted in many cases rather fondly because at least they're not English um, or at least they're not British. <laughs> but what, yeah, they, you know, the Brits are really, really loathsome uh, in that way and they're really despised around the world to the point where people are like, well, yeah, the Americans may be pushing us around in certain ways, but at least they're not the Brits. Um, so you have technological know-how and funding that's going to do a lot. And yeah, in, in the global north, there are all of a sudden a lot of discussions about population. Uh, so there's limits to growth in the Club of Rome that's going to emerge in the 1970s. Uh, the environmental movement that bursts onto the scene in the United States in the 1970s uh, is often going to have a lot to say about population. The Sierra Club is going to weigh in on, on population limits and on whether overpopulation is a problem uh, and, and it's never overpopulation in the global north, right? Or rarely. It's almost always focused on the global south. Uh, there's, I mean, so in in the U.S. in particular, there's some immigration restrictionism that gets oh, bound right, up man. with fears of overpopulation. Um, and occasionally you have environmentalists who will look with horror on suburban development and say, like, if all these people went away, like, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Like, how are we going to get the American frontier experience if everything is crabgrass was essentially the right. question some posed. Um, but the big population thing, so books like The Population Bomb, um, are conceived in part when the Ehrlichs encounter India. Um, so to a significant degree, as much as it will get applied in places like the U.S. for either immigration restrictionism, anti-development stuff, things like that, um, the Global South in many cases, uh, and India specifically in, in one really prominent case, is going to be the boogeyman uh, that people are looking to and saying, oh, too many hungry mouths to feed. So literally, I mean, literally musing, with, you know, like playing around with the idea of, hey, it might be good if we had another die off rather than reconsidering the the fundamentals of growth above all capitalism as the way forward i mean literally you would it was easier for people to consider the idea that maybe there's just too many people on earth than to rethink the the fundamentals of the the economic system yeah and and what's interesting so there's been some new work that's just coming out um thinking about like when does this growth idea exactly set in because uh, there's quite a lot even in what we think of as the capitalist core there's a lot of people who are comfortable with planning i mean i remember a few years ago i had students read gifford pinchot uh, one of the founders of the u.s forest service and a key advisor to teddy roosevelt and I had a student who asked me if, if Pinchot was a communist because this sounded like central planning. And like, uh, yeah, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt is cringy. Famous communist Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, famous communist Teddy Roosevelt. But, I mean, to a certain degree, you know, you have people living in the 21st century and they're reading Roosevelt's ideas about managing resources and the ideology of conservation in the U.S. And they're like, oh, that must be communism. 
because growth has taken over in a way, and I think it's kind of the 70s and after when this happens, growth takes over in a way there that is alien even to hyper-capitalists like Teddy Roosevelt, you know, noted anti or noted communist Teddy Roosevelt. Right. 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 Uh, And I think that we should probably wrap up here, but I think it's really important. I'd love to get your opinion on the fact that like in a real sense, we're all capitalists. Now I, I would define China as a state capitalist society, you know, not really communist and, you know, very, I I would add to that actually. I mean, the, the alternative to the world bank now, the big alternative is the belt and road, initiative, which is the same thing. I mean, it's built on the same premise that big infrastructure, big growth, these are the these are the things you need to to go for. So yeah, I mean, in a very real way, not only is China capitalist domestically, but the the what it's doing worldwide in terms of development is is the same thing. I mean, it's the same impulse. So uh, exactly. And Keith, I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on the fact that, you know, how could we in the North Atlantic tell countries like China or India to slow their development, you know, when they have been the victims of colonization and have existed in a certain place in the world systems that we've been talking about uh, this entire time? And, And what do you see as the way forward? Yeah. So, I mean, this is obviously the tough question, right? I mean, we know that the U.S. was long the leading emitter of carbon dioxide, and China has partially has overtaken the U.S. Um, although, of course, with offshoring, you know, one of the big questions we need to ask is how much of this is is moving American workshops elsewhere, and then saying like, well, it's not our emissions anymore. We've we've shifted them to some place in the global south, and that's their fault now. Right, because uh, we consume so much. Right, we consume so much that the placement of ec- ethical responsibility might be more on us than on the other producing countries. Yeah, and. And this is something that manifests, I mean, I think China and India, um, Brazil to a significant degree, I mean, Bolsonaro made an argument like, hey, I should be able to bulldoze the Amazon and and turn it into farmland because what else can we say of the great plains of the United States or the forests of New England, Um, all of these places in North America? And it's an argument he's using for, you know, cynically, obviously, uh, in terms of historical actions and historical responsibility to justify something that horrified a lot of people, um, just burning of huge chunks of the Amazon to convert it over into tillage. I think some of the real challenges are to imagine democracy and sovereignty, uh, indigenous rights as as key forces for what we're going to do here. So a good example of this, uh, the Gates Foundation has poured a ton of money into African agriculture and with their vision for what African agriculture should be, um, which is commercialized agriculture aimed at global commodity production in order to lift people out of poverty. There's opposition to that from agroecology groups, one of, at least by their claim, one of the largest civil society groups on the African continent, saying there's another way for us to develop through agroecology and through farming that is going to be more resilient against climatic changes. But some of these things require support. Um, There was a case where Bolivia had asked for funding from the global north in order to enact a conservation plan and and to not engage in gas production or uh, cultivation 
of forests, things like that. Was this under Morales? Yes, this was under Morales. Um, And, you know, at first the Global North was like, hey, hey, maybe we'll try. And then they didn't. You know, the money didn't come through. Uh, To some degree, if we're going to ask people to not engage in a very particular model of development, there's got to be a real alternative that we provide. And I think one of the reasons that Belt and Road is successful, and if you look at South America in many cases, there's quite a lot of gratitude for Belt and Road development because it doesn't come with some of the same strings uh, that comes with World Bank or sort of IMF or other development coming from the global north. I mean, I think if people are like, well, we got to find an alternative. One is um, value indigenous knowledge and indig- indigenous adaptations to live with the land. Um, huge amounts of biodiversity is in land that is currently controlled by indigenous peoples. So preserving that seems like a really good idea. And the only way to do that is to make sure that those indigenous lifeways aren't being threatened by uh, strip mining, uh, massive commercial agricultural development, things like that. I think in other cases, uh, it really has to be about providing reasonable alternatives uh, for countries in the global south. It's not fair to say you can't develop uh, and that we're just going to sort of cruise or maybe slowly decarbonize here in the U.S. Instead, there need to be real alternatives that are less energy intensive, um, that value things that people are already doing there. Um, and there's going to be an emphasis on resilience. Uh, and this goes back to, to Caltrials. To a degree, when you put people into the pressure cooker of commodity production uh, for commercial markets, it takes away all the margin to engage in farming activities or productive activities that might be a little bit more labor intensive, might be slower, might not be quite as profitable. Um, it's finding ways to enable those things that will shift. And, and frankly, I think if the glo- if the U.S. and Europe start to shift, you know, big incentives for India and China to not shift start to go away. But I mean, someone's got to jump first in this case. And I think it's the obligation of citizens of the U.S., uh, of EU nations to say, well, we should be the ones to jump. Um, we have a historical responsibility. And so we should move first and remove the disincentives to other places following along. Uh, do you think it's a problem that the leadership of the party that's supposed to care about climate change is above 75 years old? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean... <laughs> So, yeah, not to speak in any specifics here, but yeah, the the, the gerontocracy in the US, you know, obviously, some people are like, well, I'm not going to be alive. I I mean, I I think the bigger issue beyond the age of the people involved is the scope and scale of the change that would be required. And the fact that undertaking some of these changes will necessarily involve upsetting some entrenched economic interests and upsetting some patterns of, say, American development, ideas of American freedom, like your ability to drive a car literally everywhere for everything. Um, They're going to have to touch a number of third rails to some degree of American politics. It's going to take some courage, uh, and it's going to take building a vision for why this is not just 
everyone getting screwed. And it takes vision to do that. And yeah, none of them really seem inclined to do so. And I don't know that can, that, that can just be chalked up to age um, because younger members of the Democratic Party, I, I think, really don't show any greater inclination uh, to make the hard choices that are going to be required if we're going to do something serious about this. Well, Keith, thank you so much. Uh, This was really a wonderful interview. Derek and I really appreciate it and will undoubtedly have you back. It's pretty impressive that we're able to go from the the founding of human civilization uh, and agriculture to, you know, just yesterday. And we really appreciate it. And thanks so much for coming on American Prestige. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. This was a blast. Thanks, Keith. 